0: This is Dr. Eric Morrow. Welcome to this edition of On Politics. We're glad you're joining us today right here on KTRL FM 90.5, and we are continuing our series and focusing on different elements or aspects of our society, of the world around us, uh, related to the impact of the COVID-19 crisis. As you know, we've looked at public education, we've looked at economic issues here in Stephenville and throughout the region. We've looked at public health and we continue this as as we did last week at looking at the primary and convention process in the state of Texas, especially since we're in a general election cycle and how this uh, crisis has impacted that process. And so we want to welcome and joining us today, we're very glad to have you, Mr. Gilberto Hinojosa, who is the chairman of the Texas Democratic Party and understand Mr. Hinojosa and looking at your uh, bio that you've been uh, in this position for uh, almost nine years now. And, and so you've seen, I know a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, change and transition given the general election cycles and even the state election cycles that, that we've been through. So I want to welcome you today. You, you are a former judge in Cameron County. Uh, you were in, in that, uh, in Cameron County's government from 1995 to 2006. Uh, you've had experience at, at different aspects of the party, both at the state and national level. And uh, we just want to welcome you today. Thank you for joining us. I, right. I wanted the first first question I really wanted to ask was, uh, and, I, and this comes from my experience of teaching uh, state and local government here to college students in Texas, but really seeing how that most students and really a lot of people just don't do not understand uh, the primary and convention process. They, 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 you know, some people go, they go vote in a primary, they think they're selecting the candidates and in a way they are that are going on the, on the ballot for the general election, but there's a lot more to it than that, especially in determining, uh, if there's runoff elections or as well, the, 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 the party pro- platform and, and trying to look at uh, how that platform will be developed as well as how the party will be represented at the national level when we're in a presidential election cycle. Could you give us a, a little uh, insight in, into really how that process works and, and what happens from the primary on to the state convention? Well, the primary
1: election, um, ends up, uh electing our our nominees, Uh, whoever's going to run under the Democratic ticket in November uh, for the positions that are considered to be partisan positions, uh, the legislature, um, judges, um, uh, different offices in county government, like county judges, county commissioners, um, and statewide officials, state, you know, the governor, U.S. senators, congressmen and women, they're elected in the primary. Texas is a Southern state. So it's, uh, Texas uh, ha- require is a Southern state, is required to have uh, a person in order to get a nomination for a, uh, an office, uh, has to get more than 50% of the vote. So if they if you don't have 50% of the vote, and by the way, this is unlike most states in the North, um, which is the top vote getter is the nominee, but here in the, mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, um, as, uh, as in most southern states, you got to get 51% of the vote, 50 plus one percent of the vote in order to be the nominee. So if you don't get it in the in the in the primary, you have to run a, uh, do a runoff, and usually takes a couple of months to have a runoff after the primary election. Primarily because Texas has a law that uh, allows for servicemen and women to be able to vote, so there's enough there has to be enough lead time to get them. A ballot, and to have them return the ballot in order to be able to to have them have access to uh, voting on a runoff. Anyway, once that happens, then we lead into the state convention. Now, what the the purpose of the state convention is different um, in in uh, gubernatorial election years from presidential election years. In presidential election years, which is where we're at right now, um, it it has. A lot of the similar functions, but some additional functions that are very important uh, for purposes of, uh, especially nowadays when these presidential elections are are not as clear-cut early on as what you saw this time around uh, in in this uh, uh, primary for for the presidency. So normally, what a state convention does is you you uh, you uh, pass a platform. The platform is what the party stands for. You know all. Where we stand on all the issues that are important to Americans, um, you know, the issue of uh, a uh, economic issues, uh, some social issues, whether or not uh, a woman has a right to choose what to do with her body, um, positions on on marriage equality, um, minimum wage, support for uh, 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 the right to uh, collectively bargain, and so on and so forth. Issues that are, are important to working men and women and families all across the state of Texas, education, healthcare, and so forth. Um, we also uh, entertain and pass resolutions on issues outside of the platform. A lot of them very similar to what's in the platform, but some of them are different. Uh, that, that That happens both in gubernatorial election years and presidential election years. We also elect at the state conventions on both uh, 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 gubernatorial and presidential election years, the executive committee of the Democratic Party, who runs the party uh, all uh, all year long, uh, all the time. So every two years, we have elections for a committee made up of a man and a woman from each senatorial district in the state of Texas. And then there's caucuses uh, it, that are part of the Democratic Party that have also... Uh, members in the executive committee and those caucuses meet during the conventions and they also elect persons to be on the executive committee and there's other business that's entertained you know there's you know we have our gubernatorial candidates in gubernatorial election year and other statewide candidates that that have already been nominate, nominated and it's a rah-rah time to hear them to get people excited to get ready for the, the election in november in presidential election years there's an additional factor that goes in comes into play, and that is we have to elect the delegates to the National Convention. And those delegates in Texas, under the recent rules that are passed by the Democratic National Committee are selected uh, 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 based on two criteria. They're selected based upon um, how many people voted in a senatorial district um, in, in, in in the preceding election. That's how you determine how many Delegates are assigned to each senatorial district in the state of Texas, and you you have to select delegates according to the presidential preference. So, let's say um, in the presidential election you had um, this. I don't remember what the numbers were, but um, if uh, Joe Biden got 48 percent of the vote and Bernie Sanders got 35 percent of the vote, or something to that effect, um, then then. The the delegates are allocated to each presidential candidate based upon the percentage that it ultimately ends up because it's, there's a lot of people that dropped out prior to that time, prior to the time that you have the the uh, the national convention so you reallocate some of those positions if they for people that didn't meet a threshold and once you determine that threshold once the people determine whether someone reached the threshold then you can assign delegates and it, in other words if if at after the allocation is made there's supposed to be let's say 52 or 53% of the delegates have to be Joe Biden delegates and let's say um 42 or 43 have to be uh Bernie Sanders delegates and then the rest of Bloomberg delegates that's who is elected whoever runs for delegate has to be running for those particular positions once those are selected at the state convention, that's who is allowed to go along with alternates uh, to the national convention. And then we also, you know, we pass resolutions that go uh, and are presented to the national convention as well. We, uh, we also select um, the elector, the, the presidential mm-hmm. elector, the people that I will actually cast the ballot, one of the 38 uh, electoral votes in the state of Texas. Texas, as well as most of the states in the country, is Has got a system based on the electoral college that whoever wins the majority of votes, uh, or not the majority, the the plurality of votes in a uh, in a state gets all all the uh, the electoral votes from uh, that particular state. So all that issue. So if you're, it's a it's a pro forma role to be an elector, but a lot of people want to be in a position where for Mm -hmm. the first time in forty years um they'll right. be able to vote for uh, a democrat for president in the united states cuz it hadn't happened in a long time so that's essentially the way the convention uh, process normally normally every 2 years we have a a convention at a location where we texas has the largest state convention in the country the only other mm-hmm. larger convention than ours is the democratic national convention we have a convention that we have anywhere between eight to 10, sometimes even more uh, uh, delegates coming to the convention. So it's a huge event to produce. um, And we were gonna have one this time around in San Antonio, but because of the coronavirus um, uh, pandemic, the city of San Antonio uh, uh, put us in the position where we had to cancel our in-person convention. So right now we're planning for a virtual convention. It'll be the first in the nation um it's a a massive project that we started about six weeks ago uh and i think it's going to be a production that uh is going to be handle a lot of the business of the party in a different way in some respects in a much more effective way in a in an efficient way in some respects we're not going to have what you'd like to have which is that uh, pep rally before the football Mm -hmm. game right Uh, and i played football in high school and our games were always on Friday night. We'd have a pep rally uh, on Friday afternoon at school, and everybody would get pumped up for the game. We're not going to have that. We're going to have to get our team pumped up, you know, in other other non-traditional ways uh, as, as Labor Day comes around. But but we're ready for this, and we'll we'll make the best of the situation. And obviously, the most important thing is that people are safe, and they don't they don't uh, they're not uh, exposed to any disease that, we're going to need them to continue to support their, support their families and 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 enjoy this american way of life that we have today so that's
0: well that, that's, that's a, that sure sure yeah and that's great i mean that that is 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 very helpful in understanding that process and then, and then too, transitioning to see what the impact has been of the uh, the covid-19 crisis and and especially on a convention i mean yes texas is known for these large uh, party conventions that bring people from all over the state together uh, and and there's that that element of having people there with your with political leaders, party leaders uh, in order to uh, uh, like you said get everyone ready for the the push to the national election uh, what are what are other areas that you see? I mean you' talked about six weeks to to move a a very large uh, convention on to, uh, in, into a virtual platform. What, we, we were able to have Super Tuesday and have the primary elections, but what, uh, what other impacts uh, do you see here? I, I mean, I know one for certainly is campaigning. I mean, this has really changed the dynamics of campaigning and I didn't know how uh, the, the state party is, is, is addressing that and helping and, in, and guiding candidates uh, in that area.
1: Well, it's a planning process that that depends upon a lot of things, and so we have to um, we have to have contingency plans based upon what where we are ultimately in the fall. I mean, we have a runoff that got postponed from May until July, um, and so right now it's safe to say that uh, July will still probably, to a large extent, be in this crisis. Um, they'll. There probably will be a lot of social distancing still going on, and a lot of people will probably not want to uh, show up and vote in person. Um, And so um, the party has been uh, advocating very strongly for a vote by mail program, not to force everybody to vote by mail, but to give everybody that option. Uh, Texas is a, a very strange state when it comes to voting we discourage people from voting we don't encourage people from voting we discourage people from vote, uh, registering to vote we discourage people from from organizing to register to people to vote most states allow voters to vote uh, to register online most states allow uh, voter registration campaigns to go the way they need to go Mo- uh, with respect to voting most states allow anybody that wants to vote for mail to be permitted to vote by mail. Um, you know, a few states are like Texas, where in order for you to be able to qualify on voting by mail, you have to meet certain specific categories, and there are criminal consequences if you violate those conse- those uh, criteria. Um, for example, in, or if you encourage people to violate uh, that criteria. In Texas, in order for you to vote by mail, you have to be over the age of 65. You have to be um, a, a person who is not going to be in your district or your county on election day. Uh, it's got to be someone who, a prisoner, who's uh, going to be in prison, or it's got to be somebody that has a disability. If you went to vote, go vote, that prevents you from going to vote, or if voting would cause you physical harm. Um, so, initially, um, the, the Secretary of State's office um, said, Well, we're going to let each county interpret it the way they want to interpret that. Um, and that created a lot of confusion. So, when we went, we went to the Republican Party and said, Look, let's agree that we will approach the governor's office, say, anybody that is fearful of uh, of, be, of contracting uh, COVID-19 at the polling place when they go vote in person should have the option to vote by mail. What's wrong with that? It's it's, mm-hmm. it's a nonpartisan issue. Anybody, there's just as many people who the, the, the coronavirus doesn't distinguish between Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. Right. If, 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 if you're going to contract that virus, it doesn't matter who you are. And so if there's a high degree of danger that in a polling place that when you show up to in a polling place that you're going to contract that virus and, and no human beings that haven't gotten it are immune for it from it. So that means there's a good chance that, that you can by attending the polling place and actually voting, you can endanger your life. Uh, And so we asked whether they would be uh, in agreement to encourage the governor to allow that. Uh, they said no so then we went to the to the the governor's office and they said no so we filed a lawsuit in travis county uh, and had a trial and we put on witnesses epidemiologists testified doctors testified that said this is something that people can get by showing up at a polling place, uh, and okay. and the, the varying degrees of harm to individuals uh, and showing up at these polling places will expose you to that virus and you can take it home as well and and expose the rest of your family to it. Uh, And and contrary to what Republicans were saying, if you vote by mail, that ballot's not gonna have (laughs) the coronavirus Mm -hmm. by the time it reaches the elected officials. Anyway, we put on the evidence, the district judge heard it and Travis County agreed with us and entered an injunction. Simultaneously with entering in that injunction, the attorney general of the state of Texas issued a advisory opinion, or I think that's what it was. It was not a formal opinion from the attorney general's office, an advisory opinion where he disagreed with the judge and threatened to prosecute anybody in the state of Texas that advised a person to vote by mail if they were fear in contracting COVID-19 if they went to vote in person. So that's kind of where we're at uh, at, at, at at this time. We all also uh, we filed a parallel lawsuit in federal court in San Antonio um, where we're our position is and it's consistent we believe with what 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 the truth the, uh, where facts are right now in Texas if you take the uh, the right to vote or to na- the national right to vote under the 26th amendment to the United States Constitution, Anybody over the age of 18 has a constitutional right to vote, right? So, but what happens because of coronavirus, because COVID-19, that has now come to a different situation. Anybody over the age of 18 that is fearful of going to vote in person, unless they're over the age of 65, cannot vote. Because the state of Texas has said, we're not going to recognize the fear of exposure to COVID-19 as a disability entitling you to vote by mail. And so what we, our position is that violates the constitutional right to vote because you can vote if you're over the age of 65. You don't have to give a reason. You don't have to be fearful. You just don't vote. You just vote by mail. But if you're under the age of 65, and like you and I, I'm not gonna go vote in person because I don't want to get sick. I'm, over, I'm actually over the age of 65 and I could vote by mail. But if I was under the age of 65, I wouldn't go vote because I'm not gonna expose myself and my family to that. That means I'm being deprived of my constitutional right to vote. The other factor that's involved there as well is that if you take Texans um, and you take the demographics of Texans, demographically, there are more Anglo or white people over the age of 65 percentage-wise than the population as a whole. And so what happens essentially is that by prohibiting people under the age of 65 from voting by mail, you are having a disproportionate impact on Hispanics, African-Americans, and other minorities and depriving them of their right to vote in a disproportional way such that it violates their 14th amendment to the, their 14th amendment rights to equal justice as well as or yeah equal justice as well as their right their constitutional right to vote so that lawsuit's pending in federal court when right before we filed that the attorney general came because what happened after we got our injunction um the harris county election officials dallas county elected official election officials Bexar County election of all the big, large cities and counties in the state of Texas said they were going to allow people to vote by mail um, if they were in fear of contracting uh, COVID-19 at the polling place. And the attorney general again issued a threat. He, he sent out an email to all election officials in the state of Texas stating that he would prosecute anybody that advised people that they, that they would, that if they voted by mail because they were fearful of contracting uh, COVID-19 that he would prosecute him under the criminal laws of the state of Texas. So that's where we're at right now. We're asking for an injunction against him as well in the federal court and senator.
0: If, if well, depending on how this works out and, and if mail voting, if voting by mail is an option, uh, uh, and <laughs> you know, we've seen this in other states, we've seen where, uh, of course, we're, we have a lot bigger electorate, sometimes three or four times some of the the sizes of the other states, but w- what do you see is the, is or Maybe other other options in addition to voting by mail, as we move to the general election. I mean, you look you look at this time. Some are saying that uh, flu season we may have a resurgence of the of the virus, and that that's going to be very critical. One is uh, you know you see a few people here and there say, well, maybe we need to reconsider that. I don't see a large call for changing or postponing uh, something that's very much a part of who we are as a country. Uh, uh, our, our elections are very uh, really sacred to us in terms of our right to vote. Uh, Has there been any other discussions or or ideas put forward, or do you see anything out there uh, that would say, Hey, look, here's, there's different ways that we can try to handle this to make sure that people are able to vote on election day.
1: We we have never in the history of the United States postponed an election. Right. Never. Um, In a general election. During the middle of the Civil War, um, uh, the general, I can't remember what his name was, um, that had been the commanding general for the Union forces um, had been fired by Abraham Lincoln. And he decided to run for the Democratic nomination and was the Democratic nominee for president of the United States against President Lincoln. And the prevailing wisdom out there, because people were tired of the war, whether he was probably going to beat Lincoln, and the entire nation was in a civil war. I mean, imagine this—a civil war where we're in the we we are having brother against brother fighting each other in all over the country. Um, martial law was in place all over the all over the country. It would have been a perfect example, a per- perfect situation where Abraham Lincoln could have said, "Well, look, this is not a very..." Con- this is not going to be a good way to conduct an election in the middle of a civil war. And he refused to do that. He made a decision that no matter what, there was nothing more important than preserving our democracy and what we stand for and a person's right to elect their leaders. And even if it meant him losing, then that, so be it was the way it was going to go. We had a, a similar uh, play, uh, pan- uh, a pandemic or a plague and, uh, and uh, with the Spanish flu, the election was not postponed. In World War One, the election was not postponed. We were in a world war in the 1940s and the election was not postponed. And so there is no history for that to happen. What we should be doing is making sure that people have a constitutional right to vote. You know, at the end of the day, if the Republican uh, Attorney General and the Governor of this state refuse to allow people to exercise the right to vote by mail. We're going to figure it out. We're going to do something. We're going to make sure that people find a way to vote. If we have to have, you know, uh, lines of vehicles and doing uh, drive-by voting all over the state of Texas, and and people can show up and vote like that, that's what we're going to do. We're planning we have contingency plans in the party to do any of a number of different options in making sure people exercise the right to vote, whether it's a vote by mail program that would be massive, whether it's a drive by voting program, where it's some kind of some, where it's some kind of program where people minimize the risk to themselves and to their family. We're going to do it Mm -hmm. because that's just what we think is, what has to happen. And hopefully, and, and, and what's, what's even more, uh, I think, uh, dramatic today is this. All predictions in the state of Texas were that this was gonna be the largest turnout mm-hmm. election right. in the history of the state of Texas. Right. We're gonna have huge numbers of people uh, voting this election. And and if you layer on that, the fact that the Republican governor and legislature eliminated straight ticket voting, which means that in large counties like Harris County and Dallas County, where you have 40 or 45 judges on the ballot, you're going to have ballots that are going to be three pages long or longer, or four mm-hmm. pages long, with something like 70 or more positions on the ballot where people now cannot vote straight. They can have to go to the polling place and vote 70 or 65 positions on the ballot, one by one. How long are those lines gonna be? If you're social distancing you know six feet away, you're gonna have a mile long line, people voting. And the amount of time that it's gonna take for people to vote is not gonna be 30 minutes or 45 minutes. It's gonna be three or four hours at a time. That affects our democracy. Well, I mean, it, it just—it makes no sense, then that that this is happening. But if this is the way the Republican Party wants to do this, then so be it. Then we will fight that fight and the only way we know how, which is we will organize, organize, and organize.
0: I, th- I think part of it too is a is a call here for awareness, which is a lot of what we do on this show is providing information and just trying to alert people to to be aware and looking at things that that we may need a, a, a lot of election uh, personnel. I mean, it, it's one of those things where uh, in order to process some of this, whether it is by mail or it's by uh, a, a combination or it's by driving by uh, uh, precinct locations, it seems like there's definitely gonna be an, a demand here for people really to step up and, and volunteer and work with local election officials. Uh, to to make this work at all. I mean, otherwise we're going to see those scenarios, like you're saying, where you have people waiting for hours and hours to vote, not knowing what the, you know, the weather or what we have to do related to the, to the pandemic. Uh, it just seems like a need for people really to put their support behind a basic right that we have and to make sure that people are able to participate to the full extent in this election. Well,
1: and that that's the other factor that that I, I don't understand how this is going to be handled. There, there is a big problem with respect to election officials, who's going to run the election. Historically, the people who run elections are retirees, elderly people mm-hmm. who, who, uh, who do this on the side. Um, you, in Dallas, uh, I think it was in Dallas County, in Dallas County, they they normally normally recruit somewhere between 300 or so um, uh, election officials for the runoff election, or or a lot more than that. But by by right by now, we'd have about 300. They'd only been able to recruit something like 65 or 70 up to mm. now. They're short several hundred election officials because no one is afraid. The the uh, the Wisconsin election that happened about three weeks ago. They've already started getting numbers of election officials who contracted COVID-19 while they were conducting the election, on top of a lot of voters who, who, who got it as well. So this has ramifications all over the place. I mean, if you don't have people able to administer the election, well, how do you conduct the election?
0: Right. Right. Do you, do you think this is a case? And I I was, this was just came up in conversations with my wife this past week of uh, talking about these kinds of issues. And I, I mean, are we at the point that we need to consider an election uh, holiday in order to uh, be able to, to, to uh, get the ranks of people, you know, you know, my age, I mean, I'm in my early fifties, but it seems like we need a lot more people engaged uh, this year no matter what the the process is, you know I know you're you're advocating for more voting by mail, and and even if we had a mixture or or one or the other, it just seems to me that there's going to be a requirement to have more people. Uh, the risk to, uh, to 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 uh, our senior citizens, who like you're right, every time I go to vote, it's the it's the retirees who are uh, there every time. Sometimes the same people every year after year who are manning those uh, those precinct sites to make. Make sure that the election happens. I just, uh, to me, it just seems like we've got to be ready uh, for a lot of different possibilities.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, they and they're the most vulnerable, as we all know. Um,
0: right.
1: You know, our election laws were created um, uh, 250 years ago. Our, <laughs> the reason why we vote on the first Tuesday of November right. on odd, on uh, even, uh, every four years, and even election years um is because we lived in an agricultural society in Mm -hmm. the year 1776 and when the constitution passed Um, and so most farmers um were not in season in the uh, first tuesday they didn't have to be harvesting their crops they didn't have to be planting their crops they had this little period of time for a couple of months when they did not have the urgency of the work that was required uh, for farmers during that period of time. So they set these elections at that time. Mm-hmm. We are not, no longer an agricultural society. It makes no sense that we have an election on a Tuesday as opposed to a Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. It makes no sense that, that we don't give everybody the day off. To go out and vote. I mean, we we again we discourage people from participating, not encourage them. We make it hard for them from voting for voting instead of making easy making easy for them to vote. Uh, and and to this day, I just un, don't understand why that mentality exists in this country, particularly in the state. In the state is it just is really hard to be, get people to understand that. You know, this is our most important, most fundamental right that we have to elect the leaders. We should make it easy for people to participate so that they can want to go vote instead of scaring them, making it hard for them, make it complicated for them. All the things that that are in place today um, is one of the reasons why Texas uh, has the lowest voter turnout of any Mm -hmm. state in the country.
0: Right. Yes, we talk about that at length in our classes and pointing out, especially when you move to those uh, uh, off year elections when we're voting on constitutional amendments. Uh, that one's always one that is interesting to get into dialogue with students about saying, do you actually know we have an election and it's just on constitutional amendments? And, but you know, some of those things go back to those kind of norms that have gotten locked into place that become so very hard to change because there's just not the, the, the political will, it seems like uh, in the state to, to do that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm big on constitutional reform of seeing the need uh, for so many things, our, 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 our revenue system and, and, and other areas, but, you know, talking about, about change. I mean, we, we we've seen this attention given to Texas for a number of years now about, the shift in party identification uh, the, the there's all you know been all these predictions in the past decade over Texas uh, turning purple and then and then blue and looking at the uh, the growth in the Latino population in the state. And, and so it's, for for me as a, as someone who looks at this and teaches it, it's I realize it's much more complex than just a, a straight demographic transition. There's a lot more things happening. You've been involved in this for almost a decade now and even longer in your, uh, just in the, in the roles that you've had, but as, as, as chair of the democratic party, um, where, where do you see things happening? What are what are kind of the dynamic changes that are going on uh, in the state uh, that are related to uh, the Democratic Party, and where do you see some of this going in in the future?
1: Well, I I, I think that when I first took over the party in 2012, um, the issue for the Democrats was you know we we had a lar- we have a large Hispanic population. Half the people in the state are Hispanic. Um, with African Americans and Asian Americans, it's a majority-minority state. Every majority-minority state in the country is run by Democrats today. Why wasn't it in Texas? And the reason, primarily in Texas, was because Hispanics have very low turnout, and that's a product of, of uh, economic factors and educational factors. I mean, any any ethnic group uh, that has a that is a lower ec- lower level economically. Lower level educationally will vote at lower levels. That's just the way it works, and that's where Hispanics are at in mm-hmm. Texas. I think the probably the exception to that rule are African Americans because they had a 75-year history where their number one issue was achieving civil rights by winning in the polling places, getting people to register to vote, getting them to go out and vote, and they had a 75-year civil rights movement that that's all they focused on. And so today in African American communities, that's a big issue. I mean, you know, you've heard souls to the polls, African-American churches emptying out on Sundays and going to vote early. Uh, And so you have a high, you have in some places a higher turnout in African-American communities than you have in Anglo-American communities. But that that hasn't kind of taken hold with Hispanics. And so our effort has always been to increase voter turnout, increase voter registration, uh, do engagement programs, getting Latinos to understand that voting is not only important for themselves but for their families. Um, and we've had moderate success in that. Um, places like Houston, Harris County, where we've had, you know, almost a million people registered to vote, most of them Hispanics, in the last uh, three or four years, and continue to to do that. But you still, mm-hmm. along the border, have low voter turnout in Latino communities. What's happened in Texas is a little bit different though. Where we have had major demographic changes in Texas that has changed the political landscape of this state is in been in the suburbs. In the suburbs of Texas outside of Houston, Travis County or Austin and the DFW area um, has been huge numbers of people moving into these suburban communities from the East Coast and from the West Coast. People who were not traditionally people that automatically voted for, you know, Republicans that 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 had that knee-jerk reaction to partisan politics. They were coming in with either two either an open mind, not necessarily a Democrat or Republican, or they were coming in with a Democratic party frame of mind they consistently voted for democrats in in the states that they came from california new york new jersey up the the east coast Uh, and they moved to texas in large numbers in these suburban areas and when they started participating in elections they were looking at things either more objectively or more leaning towards democrats and that's what you've seen in terms of the changes and why we've been able to Mm -hmm. achieve a lot more um success in the last four or five years, six years in the past. We're much more, we're much more organized than we were before. And, and I think the, the national party has focused a lot more in Texas um, in, in the last few years. I mean, we, we are receiving funding from the national party this election cycle, probably 20 times more than we've ever received before. Um, we, the, the national party has targeted seven congressional seats. Twice as many as any other state mm-hmm. uh, in the country. We have a full-time office of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in Texas uh, because of these big Democrat demographic changes. In 2018, we picked up um, um, 12 state house seats. Right now, given the normal demographic trends, you would have thought most of those positions were. Hispanics or African-Americans. The great majority of members in the legislature today that are Democrats are either Hispanic or African-American. Out of those 12 seats that we picked up, the majority of them were not Black or Hispanic. Mm -hmm. There were Angles that were elected. Most of them, by the way, were women, but but it was not the normal uh, demographic group that we have depended upon in the past to win in elections. And the reason you saw that was because most of these victories occurred in suburbs, uh, outside of Dallas, Fort Worth, that area, outside Mm -hmm. of Houston, uh, outside of Travis County. I mean, at one point, for example, in Travis County in Austin, um, uh, half the state reps were not were Republicans in this county, Travis County that everybody considers to be the liberal bastion of the state. Well, Mm -hmm. now because of these changes in the suburbs, Williamson County, for example, would be considered a, uh, a suburb. Georgetown the, the, of, of uh, Travis County, we elected two state representatives in districts that we hadn't seen a Democrat in years. Uh, and, and in those counties, you're seeing more uh, county commissioners getting elected, justices of peace. Same thing outside of, of Harris County, Fort Bend County. It's the best example I can give you. Fort Bend County is, I believe, the seventh largest county in the state of Texas. It's the home of Tom Delay. Remember mm-hmm. Tom Delay was the Republican majority leader in Congress many years ago. He got indicted and then got a, the charges were thrown out, and he ran that part of the state with a with an iron hand. This elect, we had not elected a single countywide Democrat in that county in generations, right? Mm-hmm. Last election cycle, 2018 in Fort Bend County is a suburb of Harris County or of Houston. In fact, part of, of, of Houston includes Fort Bend County, right? Mm-hmm. City limits include Fort Bend County. We, this last election cycle, we won every single countywide position in the county. Mm-hmm. And we not only that we elected an African American um, district attorney and the first Indian American county judge in the history of the United States of America mm. in this this county. And so that's an example of right. a combination of demographic changes there. And that in that county you did have a lot of people moving in from outside, but you have a large Indian American population, an Asian American population. That has that has become uh, that has moved into that area, but also become more politicized in the last few years. And so, you've seen that sh- county shift dramatically in the last four to six years. So, but you're seeing places like Collin County, Denton County, outside of Dallas-Fort Worth area, that are turning more and more in the direction of the Democratic Party. There are numbers where we would lo- lose those counties by 22, 23, 24 um, percent. We're down to you know two four percent. Nowadays, and gradually, it's those counties. Probably within the next two, if not this election cycle, within the next two years, they'll be they'll they'll be basically blue counties.
0: This makes uh, every election cycle in Texas going forward and interesting uh, to see how things do are changing uh, throughout the state. Uh, we've been listening to and talking to uh, Chairman Gilberto Hinojosa of the Texas Democratic Party. I, w- I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, this is just so engaging and helpful for our listeners uh, to, to get this perspective and to see what's happening uh, throughout the state uh, in the Democratic Party, especially too. As, uh, and this will be interesting to see. I know all eyes around the country and maybe even around the world will be on this virtual convention. Uh, that will be held, I think, the first week in June, uh, where uh, uh, the uh, Texas Democrats will come together to choose their uh, their, their uh, uh, electors, their representatives to the National Convention, and to set their platform. Thank you so much for, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more on politics, so stay tuned. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. We are glad you're joining us today and we want to wrap up the show Looking back at the two interviews that we've had over these past two weeks, the one last week with James Dickey, the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, and Gilberto Hinojosa, who is the chair of the Democratic Party of Texas that we just interviewed on the first segment of the show today. And just really kind of bring this information that we've received together. And so I've got several points here that I just want to make in wrapping this up and then really looking ahead at the election calendar and where we position all of this in relation both to Texas and the general election uh, that will be on November 3rd. So one, one of the things that I think we see in these two interviews and the information we receive from the two chairmen are the conventions. We know the Democratic convention is going to be virtual. It's going to be in the first week in June, uh, and so that's a unique thing because this is one of the largest political conventions in the country, if not in the world, and it'll be interesting to see how that works in a virtual platform. For the Republican Party, they've moved their convention to mid-July uh, in Houston, and they're still planning a face-to-face event, uh, of course, monitoring the, the pandemic and how it's impacting things as the, as the state begins to open back up. Uh, so this will be very interesting contrast here to see how both parties uh, address this in their conventions, especially in the midst of this crisis, as we discussed in both interviews. Also, I think one of the things that we see emphasized by both parties, uh, and both chairmen mentioned this, is participation. The anticipation is, is that there will be a high voter turnout, the highest in the history of the state for a presidential election, possibly 10 to 11 million Uh, Voters uh, will cast ballots in November, depending on the environment and the circumstances that are going on. And so this is going to be a challenge. Uh, It would be in a regular election cycle a challenge because that many people voting, especially in metropolitan areas where there are precincts, where there would be lines and, and hours of waiting. And so they have two different strategies here. You see one with the Republican party of, we just, need, we need more people, we possibly need more polling sites. Uh, we, we need, uh, we may need to put social distancing in place. The Democrats have made a move to try to push the state and influence the state to offer more options by mail. Uh, in addition to saying, yes, we're gonna need more options on election day, uh, including uh, polling sites where people can go and vote in a timely manner. So the the critical thing here, I think, is participation is, is is being ready, I think, prepared, all of us, is that there may need to be more people involved in just the election process and being willing to be election workers and, and being willing to uh, look at what options you have in order to be able to cast your ballot. All of this is in flux and is going to uh, the planning now is so critical to be ready for election day in November. And then if you look at this and, and, and the discussions with both uh, Chairman, transition in Texas, both parties are preparing their, their platforms. They're putting those platforms together uh, for the upcoming uh, state uh, legislature, which will meet uh, beginning in January uh, following the election. And this convention is a time for those platforms to be put together uh, we know that, that certainly the Republican Party platform is critical given the majority that they've had in both the House and Senate in the state. Uh, but that's changing. And as we talk with Chairman Hinojosa, uh, we see that demographics in the suburbs and many places throughout the state are changing and Democratic representation, representation by people elected, uh, identifying with the Democratic Party, uh, those numbers are increasing. Uh, they've been increasing very slowly, uh, but at some point we're, we're, there's going to be more and more of an influence, and we'll be looking at that in this election and in the uh, the next uh, legislative session. Uh, so these are some things to be watching in the, in the months ahead as we look to the general election. Part of this is putting it within a timeline, not just for Texas, but nationally. As we move through the month of May, we have uh, Nebraska, Oregon, uh, Hawaii, uh, Guam that have primaries that have been rescheduled or, or are scheduled. Looking into June, a number of states, Indiana, Maryland, Montana, uh, New Mex- New Mexico, and many others uh, have their primaries scheduled. And then into June, uh, also in June, Puerto Rico, Georgia, West Virginia, Kentucky, New York, uh, just a lot of primaries, even though it seems like the the Presidential candidates are set for the general election. Uh, These primaries are going to be very critical. And then, of course, in August, we have both the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee, uh, which will be August 17th through 20th, and then the Republican National Convention, August 24th through 27th in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Democratic Convention was moved, but they are still planning face-to-face conventions in order to conduct the business of the parties and prepare for the general election. And then, of course, following that, we have four debates scheduled September into October uh, before the uh, general election on November 3rd. So that kind of puts it from the point where we are now through the summer and into that general election cycle and wrapping it up uh, at the general election. And I think these are things that we need to be watching as to how the parties adjust both at the state level and at the national level in order to conduct their business, to move this process forward uh, toward our general election. And we'll be keeping you posted on this as we see changes and developments uh, related to elections. Uh, But we want to thank you for joining us. You can access the interviews that we've had the last two weeks where you download podcasts or uh, through SoundCloud. And I would encourage you to listen to those. They were were good, extensive interviews that really look at uh, the party process in Texas and how adjustments are being made in this current crisis. And then we'll be back here again next week at noon on Sunday, right here on 90.5 KTRL-FM. And we will look forward to uh, moving forward and discussing additional issues, not only related to the crisis, but following the election cycle and hopefully turning to some other state, national and international issues in the weeks ahead. Thank you for joining us.
1: Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heier and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.